Hello, all you beautiful smiling faces out there. My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Our first issue drops on January 1st, 2023, and you can pre-order it now at our website, holocene.one. That's H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E dot O-N-E. The first issue features stories from around the world on the future of design, the realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. Each iteration also features recommendations on some of the best gear, tech, and accessories out now. Each publication, including this issue and every issue moving forward, will always be limited to the first print run. And we're offering anyone listening to this right now 15% off if they use the code PODCAST at checkout. Today, I am joined by Heather Crank. Heather is an award-winning visual artist and designer who is equally comfortable and successful in the worlds of fine art and business. Her films have been showcased at the Guggenheim, Supernova Animation Festival, Meow Wolf, Night Lights Denver, and ResFest, and her clients have included firms in the tech, motion picture, music, and educational spaces. Highly versatile and skilled, her specialities include motion design and graphic design. Heather holds a BFA in graphic design from the California College of Arts and is a recipient of the Adobe Achievement Award as well as a silver IDA. Now, Heather is someone that I hadn't met until I reached out to her on LinkedIn, and I wasn't entirely sure where this podcast episode was going until we started recording and realized that Heather is one of those people that you are incredibly lucky if you get to sit down with for just a little bit of time and learn from. And I think she has a fantastic idea for anyone looking to find their passion. So without further ado, here's our conversation between myself and Heather Crank. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Heather, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I start every single podcast the same way with the same question, which is, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Coffee. What kind of coffee? Um, black coffee with almond milk and sugar. Mm. Um, and are you the person that you, that you have, like, you know, the exact amount of almond milk you're pouring in and the exact amount of sugar you're putting in? Yes. Very important. <laughs> um, and, and beyond coffee as a morning routine, is there anything else that really, um, cements what you do in the morning? I try and set like an intention every morning, um, kind of how I'd like to see my day go and just to sort of get myself on track because um, that keeps me off my phone <laughs> right away and yeah. just like a moment of reflection. And is, is this done through like uh, some th somewhat meditative? Do you journal it? Or are you speaking it out loud? Um... No, I, I literally, I'll just sit with my eyes closed for a second I'll think about what I know I have coming. And then I just kind of set an intention quietly in my mind, how I'd like to see the day unfold and how I see myself moving through it. I love that. 
and and with the coffee do you eat anything uh sometimes something <laughs> or... wow um no usually i don't eat anything i usually don't eat much in the morning i i only ask because i actually find that a lot of creative types don't eat breakfast uh they most of them always consume coffee but that's that's the kind of the backbone of that question so um, wow. yeah it's 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 a very interesting um uh causation and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand if there is actual um like hit or miss there um but uh and 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 to prep yourself for the work you do every single day um before we get into that um mm -hmm. how would you describe the work that you do now to your eight-year-old self god um okay so let's see to my eight-year-old self i make things move into and i design things and i create a lot of artwork how about that i love that do you do you think your eight-year-old self would be stoked at that or you think they'd be confused? oh yeah oh my god my eight-year-old self would be so excited yes did you spend a lot of time um like drawing or uh in art as a kid uh is there anything oh, yeah. so, so you want to kind of walk me through that like what was what was your thing when you were eight years old like what what was the thing that you look forward to most in terms of uh was like drawing or painting or um i was really lucky when i was growing up i we moved a lot um and one of the places i lived uh one of my best friends was an art teacher and so I spent, I mean, I was over there <laughs> constantly. She put butcher paper up on the wall and we would draw and um, she'd give us watercolors and salt. And that's re all I wanted to do really was just draw and paint. Um, and then I also loved to put on performances for the block. So I would write, produce, <laughs> choreograph and make costumes. And then I would invite everybody over and we'd have, you know, the performance for the parents. But it was always really like creative and super driven to make things happen all the time. So I'm kind of hardwired like that. And and that leads into my next question pretty well, which is like, what did you learn from that? Like, what, what did you what, what did you learn from as a kid writing and directing these performances that have really helped you in your, I guess, adult life, we'll call it? What did I learn? I think um, early on, I was really aware of my love for our community and um, performers and artists. And I liked bringing them together and I liked creating things with myself, but also with other people. Um, and I, I don't know, I just loved it. I loved people and I loved creativity and um, I just knew it's all I wanted. It's That's just all I, I mean, I'm one of those people who I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> yeah. It was like going to happen one way or the other. And what, so what age then do you think? Um, so at eight, you said you're already kind of deep into this. What, what age do you think you really started picking up? Um, like, or, or realized that you had this deep desire to kind of lose yourself in creative arts? Probably right about, probably around seven, eight, somewhere around there. That's when it was really, I, I always loved it, but it kind of started to gain momentum. Um, and at that point, I was living in San Jose, California. Um, and then we moved to Fairfield, Iowa. And so my life was disrupted for a little bit. 
Um, <laughs> and when I was nine, we had a house fire um, and we lost everything, which is how I ended up in uh, Bend, Oregon. My mom is from here. So um, we came here to sort of, you know, get our life back together. And then once we were here, um, the creative spark was reignited and I was back into theater and art and all that kind of stuff. So I have a few questions because uh, I, I have a lot of questions after that, um, <laughs> as, as I do. So your move from San Jose to mm -hmm. Iowa, what prompted that move? Was it, was it, I'm guessing it was a job, parental job change probably? No. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Um, I guess, well, I guess you could kind of call it that way. Um, so my parents were very into transcendental meditation amazing and so we moved to Iowa because they had a school that taught meditation and it was sort of like the hub um and they really wanted to be a part of it so that's we just up and moved and relocated and um my parents were refinishing antiques on the side and then involved in their meditation practice until uh the fire so before we get to the fire, um, transcendental meditation is something that um, a lot of people nowadays are practicing. Not maybe not transcendental, but at least different versions of meditation. Is it something that you yeah. do yourself at all ever, or? Um, yeah. Well, so when I was four, my parents um, started me in transcendental meditation, and I would sit, you know. They have a different version for little kids um, where your eyes are open. And then when you're about nine or 10, you start the closed eyes meditation. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved in some form of meditation uh, most of my life. Um, when I was 18, I kind of broke from the transcendental meditation thing. There were some things happening internally there I didn't like. Uh, but it's always kind of part, it's just part of my life. Yeah, I love, and do you, so what does your practice look like now today or or in modern times? <laughs> so modern times, um, my practice is a lot of quite, okay, let me just back up. Sure. I should lay some groundwork for this. So <laughs> <laughs> I spent uh, my early 20s kind of traveling around the world and studying with different teachers, spiritual teachers. I did a two-week silent meditation retreat in Bangalore, India, and yoga, and um, I went to Egypt and Israel, just all over the place. Um, so after kind of this deep discovery period, I kind of dis I, I had a decision phase about what I felt was right for me and things I saw I didn't agree with and things that um, seemed to really resonate with me. So I sort of developed my own practice out of this experience, which is I sit quietly, um, usually once a day. And I personally, I don't use a mantra anymore, but I just sit in silence. I love that. And ironically enough, I actually do the same thing. Um, oh. ma mantra list. Yeah, it's it's something that um, there's a 
There's a guy, I don't know how to describe him. He's like half philosopher, half venture capitalist, which I know are contric- like conflicting oh. uh, ideologies. I'm named Naval, and he has a, um, in a podcast, he talks about how he kind of views meditation, and he views meditation as anything that distracts you from gaining peace from mind is the antithesis of what meditation is. So his big thing is like the reason why you can't quiet your mind is because you have a lot of things you have to process. So giving yourself a mantra to distract yourself with is actually stopping you from the chaos that you have to pass through in order to reach that peace. And I love that idea. That's very interesting. Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll link that below to anyone listening if they're curious. Um, I'll send it to you after if you're curious as well. But I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer um, in, in that. And I think it's fascinating. Like, I think if if most people were to ask you like, oh, why'd you move to Iowa? I think the, at least in the States, people would be like, oh, was it a military move? Or did you someone get like, you know, a new job? And I, I love that reason why you, uh, it's, it's such, such, such a like organic like but unsuspecting um premise so Mm -hmm. the fire and if this is uh like a traumatic line of questioning then feel free to pass but i i guess one thing i noticed you said is that you picked back up with the art um passion you had with art when you got back to bend so when you were in iowa were you not doing as much art or did this traumatic experience of having your entire house burned down i'm assuming losing most of your possessions like cause you to kind of drop art for a bit uh i'm curious yeah i mean there was there it was a you can i'm sure you can imagine the environments were very different from san jose california to fairfield iowa um so it was sort of a rough place as a little kid i didn't really fit in very well and the town at that time was really split um they didn't really love people coming in who were practicing transcendental meditation um, into their small farm community. Hmm. Uh, so I, you know, emotionally and, and school-wise, it was sort of difficult. Um, and also the traveling. So we drove cross country and they pulled me out of school for two weeks. So I had these giant chunks of education missing. And so I, I, I had to work really hard to try and catch back up. So my my focus when I was there was more about dealing with the educational gaps, dealing with the environment, and then our house burned down. And then um, the people we were renting the house from were out of the country. So then we were squatting in our landlord's house for several weeks. Um, it, it just There was just so much going on that there just wasn't room in you know my life to relax enough and to play enough to be creative that makes complete sense and i i think in my mind sorry i'm trying to i'm trying to piece this together um and like understand your story um because i think that's what this is this podcast is all about right it's like i want to understand everyone's story and understand what they've learned in their own experiences and the systems they built to allow people to you know, because people, I, I think everyone can learn from anyone else, whether it's someone that everyone knows about and that someone that no one knows about and then someone in between, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think from this experience, I'm sure you 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 take away, because I, I think creativity, like I, I'm someone like you that spends a lot of time in creative pursuits um, with a team of people uh, working on really creative projects um, and different aspects and different kind of uh, verticals, I guess you could say. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I've also worked at design firms where people expect this linear output in terms of design and creativity. And you and I both know that's just not possible. Um, <laughs> so I guess the question is from that kind of experience of, of feeling creative and then uncreative and then having this kind of yeeing and yawing, so to speak, um, what if, what did you learn from that at especially young age uh, when it comes to nowadays and, and kind of giving, allowing yourself space to, to be creative again? I think um, I just learned incredible resilience um, and I became really comfortable with change. Um, and I've always kind of been a shy sort of introverted person uh, and that experience definitely made that more intense. <laughs> um, but for creativity, it's a wonderful kind of personality to have because um, I need quiet and space to be creative. I also need a lot of nature around me. And I can't have, like some people want a lot of stimulation and I need the opposite. Um, so the transition to Bend, which was, which is uh, kind of a small town, mm-hmm. was helpful in that it created this safety and this comfort in this very quiet environment. Um, and as much as I got, I love culture and I love cities and I've lived in them most of my life. It's always, I've always known this about myself. There's this push pull between needing to be alone and quiet and in nature and having that safety and comfort. So I'm not anxious and I can be really creative or the pull over to the city and the energy and the culture and the art. So I think that's sort of what, in that time frame, what was forming and what I was learning the most about. Does that answer it? Yes, perfectly. Um, and there's no real answer, right? I just want to. I just want to hear your, your thoughts. And and I agree. And and having worked with creatives from both sides, you know, some people love that sitting in an office that's absolute chaos. And I'm I'm in your camp. Like if I could just work at a desk in the middle of a forest by myself yeah. with like strong wi-fi <laughs> which i would do yeah. it <laughs> um yeah. and i and i'm with you so nature uh, let's let, let's dive into that so so you mentioned you know touch in touch with nature and for people who are unfamiliar um bend oregon is this incredible small town uh what's well, about like two, what, two hours south of portland somewhere in that two three yeah Close two-ish, three-ish. Two-ish, three-ish. Yeah, depending on the snow and the roads and what who's driving and, um, <laughs> but, but it's, I I love Ben because it's a good mixture of uh like creative types, athletic types, um, and just people just living a normal life. And there's good mm-hmm. food and good beer, um, and mm-hmm. you have mountains and forests and everything else in between right there. So. In, in terms of your connection to nature, how, how do you fulfill that need um, on a daily basis? Well, I'm really lucky in that I live south of town on an acre of forest, and Amazing. I can see the Deschutes River right now from my window. Um, and my house is surrounded by giant old growth um, lodgepole pines and I'm just really fortunate. So all I have to do is walk outside. Amazing. Um, But I also have this gigantic garden um, 
think my garden might be bigger than my house, actually. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and it's fenced in because we have so many deer uh, out here. They eat everything. Mm-hmm. And um, when it's not snowing, I spend so much time in that garden. Um, I do a lot of meditation. I sit there and do a lot of uh, creative work on my phone. Um, I go hiking all the time. I can actually kayak across the river that's right by my house. On the other side is a forest and it's a nature preserve. So I literally can just kayak across and go hiking. So it's really accessible to me. Wow. So you basically live in in Wonderland is what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I don't know how I ended up so lucky, but I do. That's the, that's the dream in my mind. Um, I, I, I dream one day to find uh, a piece of land like that for, uh, you know, whatever future family I hope to have to, to enjoy. Um, and, and so with, with your garden, what do you, what do you grow? Like, what is your, do you, do you spread it out over many different varieties or do you have like a couple main? So I have four beds where I grow vegetables and it, you know, I rotate the crop every year. It's Smart. better for the yep. nitrogen and soil and blah, blah, blah. So I have, this year I grew tomatoes and corns and snow peas and carrots and rhubarb and what else did I grow? Broccoli, cabbage, peppers, just a ton. I mean, ton, it's packed. Everything. And then <laughs> everything. And then I around the sides, I do a lot of flowers because I like to, you know, I like to have a flower garden. Absolutely. Flowers are I, I I have this weird thing with flowers where I'm that person if I just like if I'm even in like a really nice building even on like a, talking to a client and I pass by a bouquet of like fresh flowers like I will stop and smell it every time everywhere <laughs> like I just to me there's no no more of an intoxicating smell maybe than food uh, than that um, so so with, with food do you I'm guessing you use all these uh, in your diet um, do you yeah cook do you bake do you do all the above you want what mm-hmm. what is your kind of what is your preferred use of uh your produce preferred use of my produce um yes i do i i cook them i bring them in um i was experimenting with some pickled rhubarb this year yeah i love eating out of my garden uh is one of my favorite things because i know where the food is coming from and there's just something really beautiful and satisfying about really that really beautiful too. yeah yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What does pickled rhubarb taste like? Because I can imagine rhubarb. Like and every time I think of rhubarb, I think of pie, which I think is a fair right. uh but pickled rhubarb sounds interesting. It's amazing. I have a, a friend um and she taught me how to do the pickled rhubarb because I have rhubarb grows like a weed in yeah. uh Bend, Oregon. I had so much rhubarb I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and I was freezing it and um she was like, you should just pickle it. And it, it's like that uh, sweet, sour kind of mm. tart thing. It's delicious. It's, it's, I had no idea how amazing it was. I so wish what, I would have known. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to, I'm going to go try some now. Um, you, you, you could probably make a lot of money selling that online if you didn't already think about that. Um, cause it's one of those like niche things that I'm sure many people don't have access to that much rhubarb unless they're like yeah. a massive farm um, or at the local farmer's market. I, so, so what, what, so just to understand the flavor profile, that makes sense to me in terms of like sweet and sour, but like, what would you pair it with? Like, what would you, oh. what would be ideal? 
oh my god it's good with everything um it's really well i don't eat um red meat but if you were i have like you know meatless burgers so mm -hmm. if you pair it with any kind of burger or a hot dog or it's really good on rice with pot stickers oh, that sounds um, great. anything anything you do with the sweet savory you know thai food mm -hmm. any Asian food um and some americana because americana goes so well with sweet and sour so those are my main so far my main experiments so, yeah i i'm gonna go try some if i'm i'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm in being in japan right now Oh my I'm God. sure I'm sure I can find some like yesterday, oh you know, my God. Yes. it's, it's pretty simple. I, I love the Japanese lunch because regardless of what you order, they put down this plate and the plate always has three things on it. It's like a lightly tossed salad and like a light vinaigrette. Um, there's a pile of pickled vegetables. Yesterday was like Romanesca and pickled mushrooms, which was very interesting Ooh. and pickled eggplant and pickled oh sweet potato. Um, and then just this mixed omelet. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of standard. Um, but yeah, so I, everyone out there, try try pickled rhubarb. Um, and when oh, Heather starts selling it online, I'll let everyone know. Um, I'm like you. You could probably market it as as you know, uh, high end, small batch, farm to table, pickled rhubarb. You know, twenty dollars a jar, sell it online. Oh my god. Um, yeah. That's that's just like my startup mind going to work, being like, you could product everything, which I know is toxic to a point, but you know, it's, it's, that's how it goes. Um, so you mentioned you don't eat red meat. Do you eat fish yeah. or white meat yeah. or? Yeah, I eat fish, chicken, turkey. I just don't. I've never eaten red meat. I just ever. has never been diet ever. Oh wow, is that a, so? So your parents kind of imparted that onto you? Then it sounds like yes, yes, cool. it was part of that whole culture. Yeah. Um, and, and and being in Oregon, obviously you have access to incredible uh, wild fish, uh, just the Pacific yes. Ocean in general. Um, yes. I'm usually in Seattle, so I know all about the wild Whoa. fish of of, uh, of uh, PNW. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 great. So, do you have any favorites? Salmon, maybe. I'm guessing oh probably up there. Uh, yeah. Well, one of my all-time favorites is Copper River salmon. Mm. uh but i you know i love all fish i think uh i have yet to met a fit eat a fish that i don't like um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i had uh chilean sea bass the other night and my i hadn't had that before and my god oh, that boy. was that's Ooh. that's a special one my mom used yeah. to do it with because uh, i grew up in boston um so similar oh. like fish fish uh access and my mom used to make also had a garden never as big as she wanted to in massachusetts being able to have the, the land to do it um but especially outside of boston but she would always do um this like chutney on like a poached sea bass and like actually maybe it's grilled sea bass and that was like i have fond memories of that as a kid um yeah you know i'd always she'd always have leftovers and so when i got home from school most kids i think would want cereal or cheese hits i just wanted to have more sea bass uh, <laughs> I think that I, I think I also was fortunate enough to have a mother that just loved cooking uh, when she wasn't yeah. working and she'd always feel bad when she had to work super late and we'd be making something but the beauty of uh, her cooking was that there was always leftovers and there's always so much of it so I just like we just you know reheat um, it but kind yeah. of sw switching gears uh, from that yeah. um, so your 
creative agency, Cremonti. Yes. Um, what is it like? Because I always like asking this question to people in this position. Um, what is it like leading a creative agency in 2022? Tricky. Very tricky. Um, all of my freelancers right now, they're everybody's remote. Yep. Uh, we've really had to kind of reinvent the way we do business. Um, I used to work a lot with the Ben Design Conference, um, which is a local design conference that happens every year. And during the pandemic, you know, as a lot of conferences uh, struggled, they really struggled too. So um, not only, you know, do we create a lot of motion graphics and graphic design, but for Ben Design, we were building live exhibits and um, that went away. So we had to think a lot about who we were as a brand, um, where we wanted to go, what it looked like. And it's, it was just really hard. I mean, <laughs> really, really hard. Um, we've made it through and we're moving a lot more into AI, mm -hmm. which has been great. Um, but it's just challenging. And luckily everybody was at home. So the freelance part wasn't as complicated or difficult as it could have been because people expected that. Mm -hmm. um, and there weren't any trust issues between myself and my clients, you know, uh, but it was hard. It was a really rough period. Yeah, it was it was rough for a lot of people, um, not just beyond creative, but I think creative industries definitely got hit harder. And, and it's hard to tell what's about to happen because, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, I haven't really given any background about me, but I also run um, a studio um, and it's mostly about scaling startups. And so the creativity um, is usually it's usually a lot of branding. It's a lot of product design, yeah. uh, everything yeah. from like UX, UI to physical. And yeah. so similarly, I have a lot of freelancers that I rely on um, and I've lost a lot of them to these ridiculously overpaid salaries at large yeah. tech companies, but now they're all getting yeah. laid off again. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to figure, it's like, yes, I can give you work, but no, I can't pay you $480,000 a year. Um, yeah. And that's just, I think the way of the world, I think that unfortunately it created this artificial bubble that people are just I hope they didn't get too used to that. And I think that anyone can make that much money if they find the right product market fit and they build the right team. But it's something that takes years and you can't do it tomorrow unless you're some kind of messiah. Um, oh, yeah. But so you mentioned something that I really want to dig into, which is the utilization of AI and design. So you do a lot of yeah. motion design. So do you want to talk about how AI has been impacting your ability to or I guess increase your ability to design? Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. So it's been incredible because it's so fast. And for some weird reason, it's really easy for me. I, I have some kind of ability I didn't expect. Um, and I think it's a combination of language with visual creativity. Um, there's some hidden talent that I'm beginning to become acquaint acquainted with. Um, I use it a lot for comps. So I will generate, I'll have an idea of what I want to create and just like I would with any design project. 
and I'll start the research and bringing together conceptual ideas. And then I'll go into mid-journey and I'll start creating comps based on those ideas. It's almost identical, almost, to when I would get on the Google and research, you know, different eras and styles and typefaces. Um, and then I take the comps and I'll bring them into Photoshop or Illustrator or both and kind of work them over. Um, what would normally take me, I don't know, several days, I can do in just a couple hours. So, I mean, it, it has sped up my workflow so much. Um, I am seeing some motion design come out of it. It's not great yet. Yeah. But I, I do think there will be more and more integration with that. Um, and there is also a lot of fear around this. I have a lot of friends who are terrified uh, hmm. because they think their jobs will become obsolete. And I do think some jobs will become obsolete or are already becoming obsolete, um, especially production jobs. Yes. Um, so I think it's amazing. I think it has two sides. It has a great side and a kind of a scary side. Um, depending on how AI ethics is developed in the future and copyright issues um, and protecting mm -hmm. artists, um, there are a lot of issues, but I think the technology itself is amazing. It's amazing. It is. Um, and you mentioned mid-journey. Do you want to um, explain what mid-journey is to people that don't know? Oh yeah, <laughs> I always forget some people don't know. Um, Midjourney is a text to image uh, artificial intelligence bot. So how you use Midjourney, how I use Midjourney is um, I use it through Discord, which is a server and I use code and particular words to drive the imagery. Um, there's also Dolly, which I don't mm -hmm. like as much because it's so photorealistic and I feel like Midjourney is a little more poetic. Yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> and Stability Diffusion, I really liked, although there's a new feature now, Midjourney, uh, called Remix and um, Remaster, and they're kind of like Stability Diffusion's functionality is now in Midjourney. That's great. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's it, and that's false. So I I think Midjourney is is become the favorite of the creatives, and Dolly has become almost like a meme, based on like people will people will type in something crazy like um, uh, Elon Musk riding a dragon painted by Monet, <laughs> and it'll it'll pop that out, and it's pretty amazing. But like um, I I. Uh, I was reading a blog post recently, uh, this newsletter I subscribed to recently and like when they're trying to explain something, they'll have Dolly, they'll, they'll say like we, you know, they're trying to talk about, you know, some example of society and maybe uh, over indexation of wealth or something like that. And they'll create this story and they'll like tell the story using Dolly imagery that's based on what they put into it. And it's really, fat, really entertaining. Um, wow. But I, I do love this idea where I think it's helping fund and i don't mean fund in a material money sense i mean fund in terms of like help foster new ideas um oh. in the creative world which is really cool because like you basically the computer doesn't know what's up or down um it's just no. doing what it it 
proposes. And and one thing I want to touch on, you mentioned that people are afraid of AI replacing their jobs. I, I agree with you. I think that AI will, along with all sorts of modern movement towards things becoming more automated or we're just getting to know more about everything, um, it will replace jobs. But I think like the most creative jobs, you know, the writing of the code, um, the design of the thing, uh, so to speak, um, until we can teach a computer how to think and not just process high amounts of numbers, uh, I think those mm-hmm. those are safe. And I, and I like this idea of society where all of the basic mundane jobs are replaced with robots, automation, and AI, and basically all the work that's left is left to be creative. And imagine if you had an, an entire or mostly human race that's doing creative work. Like imagine what problems we'd solve. And that's what gets me yeah. excited. Um, it's just like, I think the the good example I've heard is the, you know, the the light bulb put a lot of people out of work. You know, the refrigerator put a lot of people out of work. Um, the airplane put a lot of people out of work. And I think that we'll always kind of r- rush towards that next uh, cliff. And then we'll find mm-hmm. new problems to solve. You know, it's like we didn't run out of jobs because we've invented electricity. You know, we didn't run out of jobs because we've invented, you know, even anything's in the past year. Um, so I, I, I am very excited about that, that, that creative future. Um, but one thing I do want to talk to you about is, is so you said it's helping you find a hidden talent you didn't know you had. And I think that yeah. this is a really important thing because we have a lot of people that are being laid off, that are being aged out of companies. Um, and what I mean by that is like someone who's been there for maybe 30 years and they're now 58 and it's really hard to find a job once you've been at one company for 30 years. Um, and, I, yeah. and I say this because my dad, he works at Steelcase, uh, if we build on like a large corporate furniture company uh, and their design group. And uh, they just laid off a good portion of their staff. And most of the people they laid off were senior employees who'd been there most of their careers. And uh, it's really hard to employ. So I'm trying to push this narrative, which I think I really want to hear your advice on is helping people find their hidden talents. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I think it's super important. I think we all have it. And I think the most successful people I meet that I look up to, all of them are like, I honestly didn't know I could ever do this until they did it. Mm-hmm. So do you want to, let's, let's dive deep into this. Okay. Okay. So I love motion design. I love graphic design, but there was something about AI and combining language with the visual output that connected to a part of myself I let go of um, when I realized I couldn't make a living being an artist. And I went more into the structure of design, which is more commercial. But AI brought that back. And I there was just something really freeing about it. And I think you just don't know what's going to open up if you don't try it. And I get that there are dark sides to a lot of changes that can happen in the world and society at large when new technologies come in. But I also feel like it's sort of like where your past meets your future. Mm. And if you're open to it, all kinds of things can come to you and develop or wake up that you didn't know were there that can allow you to do bigger and greater things. I also feel, and I wrote about this and I got some, uh, a little bit of pushback on it was a lot of my career has been spent in tech, which is very white male dominated. And I've really struggled 
And this particular technology hasn't been dominated yet, not to say the software developers aren't white male. I'm going to guess they are. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, mostly or Southeast Asian nowadays. Or, right, right. But there's uh, a moment right now where things are really open. And I really encourage people to jump in because yes. the barrier to entry is so low. Um, and so I really low. see these, it's so low and it's just this huge opportunity for people who maybe like me were really having to battle it out for a long time where you can just kind of get into it, be free and it's wide open and you can explore without the pressure that might've been with another career. So that, that's my feeling. And, and I think it's so important and I emphasize this enough. It's like, the worst thing you could ever do is not believe in yourself. And it yes. sounds so cliche and so corny, oh. but it's so true. Like I, 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 I always grew up luckily with parents that, that helped push me, but I had friends that didn't have that. And so I took it up on myself, like in college, especially I was like, look, like you think you can do this, then go and do it. There are no rules. Um, and <laughs> that's been, it's been a theme of today. There are no rules. There are no rules. And that's really kind of you because I didn't have that support. Um, and I know a lot of people around me do not have that support. Um, and if there's something you always really wanted to do, this might be the opportunity for you to do it. Totally. And the biggest thing I can do as a, as a studio owner and operator, and I don't, I don't even know, I don't like calling myself anything. I just do. I just like working with cool people on cool shit. That's what I usually say. Um, <laughs> But my, the best, what I think I've done recently a few times is that sometimes I'll have someone on my team. And by that, I mean, they're a freelancer that I'm using for a certain project, uh, or there's someone I'm working with at a new startup. And sometimes I, I, I like to say like, Hey, I, I'm sorry if I hope this is not out of line, but I think you'd be really good at this. I think you'd yeah. really enjoy this. Um, yeah. and I think you, it would be a shame to yourself and the world if you don't potentially ch chase it, you know? Wow. Um, and sometimes people look at me like, what, like what that's usually the response I get. And sometimes people are like, you know what? I've actually had a thought recently that I'm been kind of, you know, sterile in my current role, so to speak. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that, you know, when I graduated, I had a degree in rocket science, uh, from wow. like one, one of the best schools you could get it from. And the oh idea God. of like working in a lab to me was like the most depressing thing. Um, and I was lucky I had this career counselor. Her name was Melissa. Her name is not dead. Um, her name is Melissa Mena. And, uh, she basically looked at me one day cause I was like in her office borderline crying because I'd sent out, you know, like 400 applications to Boeing and Lockheed and the giants of the world. And they don't even say no, they just never respond. And it's like the most demoralizing thing. Um, but she's like, you know, you don't have to be an engineer, right? And I was like, what do you mean? It's my degree. She's like, you know, you don't have to be an engineer, right? And I was like, oh. Uh, and still to this day, like, it's one of the most pivotal moments of my life because I realized I was like, I want to go be creative. I want to go build some things that don't exist yet. I want to show up to work wearing T-shirt and Jordans and jeans. I want to be able to use my phone. And if I want to, you know, go pursue some crazy idea i'm gonna do it um and that's what i did right um but unless i had the 
And I, I realize I'm incredibly fortunate and I'm incredibly privileged to be even be able to go to school, to even be able to have the opportunity to meet people like this and to have parents that always kind of looked at me like, it's your life, you do what you want. Um, wow. And and so if I can be that for someone else, um, less alone my hopeful future potential children. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like I, I think as, as and going back into you running an agency, I'm sure you have people in your team that you have everyone's in a while are like, hey, maybe they'd be good at this and let's and, and maybe challenge them and say, hey, I want you to help out with this part of the project. Do you ever do that? And oh yeah, of, all, yeah, all the time. <laughs> it's awesome, and and also I understand it also helps you realize like oh this person can help do it, so I don't have to hire someone else, and I also would rather yeah. work with someone else that I know and I trust. Um, yeah, I get it. Like yeah. I, it's there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in in that. Um, no, but no, I, but it's also really good because you already trust the person, right? And it's yes. so hard to find somebody you know and you trust and you work with and it's not a risk. And if they can do more, bring it on. If and that's and that's everything. Um I I think that people can always give more than they think they can. Um, and I'm not saying in like uh you should work 80 hours a week. I'm saying in like uh, oh. you know, I, I always hate people are like, oh, I don't know how to do that. It's like, well, you could probably figure it out. Um, I think yeah. 99% of things are figure outable. Um, oh, I think that's my job is learning how to figure things out. <laughs> for sure. But I think that, that's what being creative means to me, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I hate the term creatives. I When people are like, oh, I work with a bunch of creatives. Like, what does that mean? Like, we're all creative. We're all solving problems. You know, as much as I hate to admit it, like someone working at Goldman Sachs, when they figure out a new way to take more money from people that don't have any money, they're they're being creative, you know? Um, it's not it's not altruistic creativity, but it's creativity. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I don't I don't know where I'm going with this tangent, but 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 I, I think the one thing I want to ask you off of this to kind of kind of round out this idea is that, you know, what do you look for when you're hiring someone? And I want you to kind of uh, explain this in in the in the light that someone listening to this could have just been laid off. Maybe they're in a creative field. Maybe they're interested in moving into a creative field. Like, what are the things that you look for that you'd recommend that people spend their time doing if they're, you know, polishing their resume, so to speak? Um, I don't really care who somebody worked for. I'm going to really pay attention to their portfolio. Um, and I would recommend limiting the number of pieces in your portfolio to like 10, um, have a friend or someone you trust, look at it and tell them, uh, what piece they think you should take out and take it out. That's, that's amazing uh, advice. Keep going. Yeah. Because, <laughs> so. <laughs> because. I think we're all guilty of being too close to our work and it's better to have a smaller portfolio of really strong work than a big portfolio of mediocre. Um, show me your best work. Show me where I can see your thinking and how you problem solve. Um, show me what you feel you have mastery over. And I also want to see your weaknesses. Like tell me where your weaknesses are and where you want to grow because that gives me a sense of how to place you um, and also, you know, then personality is a big component. I, um, yeah, I'm not interested in big egos. I don't care if you're amazing. If you're an asshole, I don't want to work with you. Um, I prioritize women, 
uh, over men just because of my own thing. I'd like to give women a chance in tech. I feel like we really struggle. We um, <laughs> but I'm not going to hire a woman over a man just because she's a woman. You, I want you to earn your spot there. Um, I think those are the main, my main criteria when I'm looking to hire somebody. That's awesome. And one more question that I've actually been asked a few times and I really want to hear your answer is people that are transitioning from a, non, a traditional non-creative role to a creative role, but maybe have done creative things in the past. They're basically combining their, my favorite people are the people who are transitioning careers and they're combining their hobbies with their past uh -huh. work and that kind of creating right. that new job. So do people who have never built a portfolio before, um, b beyond the advice you just gave, like where would you mm -hmm. suggest people to start and, and how to present that? I would start with uh, doing some research maybe about who are the top three firms in your particular genre. I would look at the kind of work they have on their site. And then I would create projects that imitate that work. Um, or maybe create a project for that specific person trying to emulate what you see as their aesthetic or um, the type of clientele that they have. And then I would build several case studies and I would write that person directly and say, hey, I really love your work. I love your company. Um, I built this product for you. Um, I'd love to work with you and I'd love to get your feedback. Amazing. And, and that works. Like it's, it's hap I'm sure you've seen it before. Um, I've seen it and it, that really does work. Uh, oh yeah. It just shows you care and it shows you're paying you attention. Care. Exactly. You care, you're paying attention. Um, the person can get an immediate read on where your skill set is, but if you're driven and you show promise and there's some raw talent there, most people are going to be willing to work with you and take a chance on you um, if they need somebody. Absolutely. And, and if you have any heroes or people that you look up to, um, the mm -hmm. time to reach out to them is, is now, right? I, oh, I yeah. said this, like, don't, 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 uh, don't worship your heroes. Like they're, everyone's a human being, uh, regardless of how successful or how elusive they may seem. I think everyone has heroes. Um, I know, I know in a few of the blog posts on your site, you've written about, um, kind of, you know, meeting your heroes. And I think it's something <laughs> where, where people, people really need, and I learned this, um, and Tim Ferriss in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which is one of my favorite books of all yeah. time, um, yep. he has this thing called the Find Yoda Challenge. Um, and he he used to do this guest lecture on the intro to entrepreneurship that kind of became the basis for the idea of this book back when he was at Princeton. Um, uh -huh. And he basically would offer a free round-trip ticket to anyone who is willing to get the um like personal phone number of like a, a top tier echelon ceo or celebrity um and most people would just show up to class the next day because only had 24 hours to do it um expecting that it was impossible and just not mm -hmm. be like oh this is crazy and he said one year someone actually did it and like the way they went through it is explained in his book and he kind of goes through how it was but he's just like look like most people are willing to just take the time especially if 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 you're going in earnest and if you are genuine 
uh, and you have altruistic intentions, people can sense that. Um, but I also warn people that if you're not being altruistic, you're not being genuine, it's immediately obvious, regardless of how you try oh. to hide it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I um, mean, and most yeah. people in the creative field spend their career observing things anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just a little word to the wise. So most yes. people are pretty trained in uh, seeing, you know, BS pretty quickly. Yes. And the last, last piece of advice I give anyone out there trying to build a portfolio and I can't believe I have to say this, and I repeat this on a monthly basis, do not steal anyone else's work. Oh my it God. is very obvious. And people Please do it don't. all the time. Oh, it's the worst. Do not do that. Yeah. Um, when I was at Collins, um, I there's a story, I'll leave everyone nameless, but there's a story I was talking with the creative directors where they uh, were in a, like the final review of someone's portfolio. They had made it through all the passes and, and everything else, and they're about to get hired as a as a full time designer at Collins, which is which is very hard to do. And uh, half of the portfolio was stolen work, and it was the creative director's work. Uh, oh my god! Which is which which and 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 to their credit, they just said they just said I am. They looked at them and they said, "Look, I'm going to give you a miraculous out." Um, this is my work. I know you oh copied it. I know you stole it. Um, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to walk away, but promise me you'll never steal anyone else's work again. Um, because this this person could have very easily torched this entire person's career, like on the spot, um, forever. Um, and I I I do like the kind of um uh mercy that the person was shown. Like, I, I think every, every, everyone deserves a second chance. As, as terrible stealing creative work is, I think everyone deserves a second chance because if they got there to begin with, they had to have had some one of the right stuff. Maybe it was just misaligned and maybe at the last minute, I would, I've seen this, I've seen this twice before. Someone has really good work, but they feel like it's still going to be a no because they don't have that self-confidence. So they put someone else's work in there as yeah. like a, oh, this will, this will verify it. And it ends up, like you know they, they end up tripping and falling and smashing their head before the finish line you know it's like you were so close um yeah. so i tell people like just just own your own work and not everyone's gonna like it and that's okay yeah it's okay yeah there's someone out there it. that loves it yeah 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 your people are out there yeah so um kind of switching gears a little bit i i i love asking this question but i think for you I'm really excited for your answer. Um, and that is, is there something, or it could be many things, that you believe in that most don't? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What a hard question. This is, whew, this can make me really vulnerable. Okay. <clears throat> um, I wrote about this a little bit when... During the pandemic, I got this um, email, surprise email from Debbie Millman asking if I would be in part of one of her projects. And one of the questions was about, do you believe in the afterlife? I always really hesitate in answering this because um, I really struggled with this growing up. But I have grown up with this certain level of sensitivity it's been with me my whole life that I have learned to kind of temper mm. and I'm very aware 
of other people's energies. Um, I can feel them. And I used to, when I was uh, 13, I was really struggling because I couldn't define where I stopped and began and where other people stopped and be and, and existed. So I'd walk into a room and it would be like everybody's feelings mm. were running through me. It's exhausting and confusing. Um, and so I just have this awareness that other people don't have. Um, and I've kind of had had to learn how to live with it and it's very frustrating because there's nothing specific or special i can do with this ability other than be aware of other people hmm. so what that means is that even if someone is really cruel to me i can see exactly where it's coming from and i have empathy yeah that's a superpower <laughs> i think i think it's a superpower right um so it's so so are you, so kind of breaking that down are you basically saying that off that example that you believe which would be a, like a 1% of 99% opinion that like even if someone is being awful at the end of the day they're still coming from a potentially good place they might have just been damaged along the way or they might have trauma or something that's standing that way Yeah or maybe sometimes it's just a lack of development like mm -hmm. they just haven't had enough um, maybe they haven't had enough pain in their life and they haven't learned, they just haven't learned how to have empathy for other people. Or maybe, maybe they have a brain dysfunction that happens too. And they just don't have control mm. over their, um, the way they perceive things. Yeah. You know, it's, I just don't have judgment, mm. you know, and I, and I, I don't, all bugs leave my house. I carry them out. I can't I hurt that. anything. I do that too. But yeah. <laughs> I can't because I just, I'm too connected to things, which also <laughs> makes it very, very difficult when I experience people suffering or pain. It's like I, I, there's not a boundary, you know? So yeah. um, that's also why I love to be in nature because mm. um, it's sort of a buffer for that specific thing but it's just it's just a weird thing i i it's been with me my whole life i don't I know that. i don't know how to describe it thank you for being vulnerable i i, I do appreciate <laughs> that answer. um to, to 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 not not to pull away from this this line of questioning but so i i met debbie once and like in passing um i think she's an incredible human being uh, to anyone who doesn't know who debbie millman is um what was it like working with debbie you know, so <laughs> I was very brief and I, I'm going to go back for a second to uh, meeting your heroes. Mm -hmm. um, so when I worked for the Ben Design Conference on programming, part of my job was to bring in big name speakers. Mm -hmm. And Debbie had been on my radar for a very long time. I'm a huge fan. She is one of the most incredibly talented, deep, resilient women I think I've met in my life. Um, she has an incredible story, if you're interested in reading about her history. Mm -hmm. um, so when she uh, gave me this assignment, it was because we had met at Ben Design and I had pursued getting her to that conference for man, four or five months and I didn't yeah. give up. And so when she finally got here, 
she gave her talk. It was incredible. I was in the next room dealing with exhibits because I was, you know, monitoring them and yeah. dealing with everything. And she texted me and said, can I meet you? I almost passed out on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I haven't slept in three days or showered, but sure. <laughs> and, and I got to hang out with her and have dinner with her. And then that led to this uh, project. And she, I mean, she's spectacular. She's direct, she's honest, she's insightful. She's articulate, she's curious. Um, I would work with her in a heartbeat. It, yeah. is, it is one of the highlights of my life. That's amazing. Um, and you should, you should work with her. Um, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't stop yourself from doing it. I'm telling you right now. I, I sense <laughs> that, I sense that, oh, I gotta, gotta leave my hero alone. I'm being bothered. But I don't want to bother her, you know, but I think, you know, I think it's, it seems like it's already written, right? Um, yeah. You should do Maybe. it. Yeah. So I, I, I had a similar experience. Um, I had the opportunity of working with someone who works alongside Debbie Millman, uh, Brian Collins. Um, oh, who I love, who yes. I love, love, yes. what an yeah. amazing person. He, yeah. An incredible human being um, in the first issue of the magazine. Um, I was, basically his apprentice for about a year um, oh god it's it's i'm one of the most fortunate people in the world but basically as i as i told you i was that kid with no job experience um with a degree in engineering who wanted to get into design and i just would not leave him alone i just kept pestering him i kept doing it i was in i remember being in collins in 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 his office in the library, which is this incredible room at the time in their old office building, um, of just Florida ceiling books. Um, there's another fun story I can tell after the, after that about this this specific room and that specific day. But long story short, the first time I like hand him my resume and he looks at it and he kind of throws it across from me. He's like, "That's not important." Oh and, I, and, that's what, and that kind of that kind of when I realized I was like, I I hated doing that and I I hated building the resume to begin with. I was really happy and after that moment, I don't think I ever showed my resume again. Um, in any environment, but working for him was like working for, I I don't know if I can, uh, compare it to anything, but similarly to, to that, I just, when one day he offered me an internship to work for him, um, Mm -hmm. I had no money. I was living in the attic of my dad's house in New York city and I was going to make not very much money an hour. Um, but he kind of said, look, like I, no one else at Collins believes that you have the right stuff you're not a designer we're not really sure what to do with you um because <laughs> most people that work there are like the upper echelon of the upper echelon of the upper echelon you know um, yeah and so he's like uh, he's like i believe in you i'm gonna take a chance on you but i'm just we're gonna figure out what you do along the way so i had this like three month period where i basically just did everything he asked of me and i worked wow. a lot and i didn't make very much money but i was very happy for the money it was still more than I would have made it like, you know, I was made the same working high end retail in Soho, but I was much rather be doing this, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, eventually I, I kind of just, you know, found my niche with him and and that converted into like a full-time role. Um, and I stayed at Collins for about a year and I moved on, wow. but, but uh, yeah, no, it's like, so the only reason I tell that story and I've told it, I think once before on, on the podcast is, is like, don't be afraid to approach your heroes. Um, yeah. 
And when I first heard of Brian Collins, he wasn't a hero of mine yet. And he became more of my hero every single day I worked for him. Um, And I think it also humanizes these people, which I think is really important. I think a lot of people think of the most celebrity obsessed individuals. They meet their Harry Styles, their Taylor Swift, and they lose their mind. But the Harry Styles, the Taylor Swift in this, in this like scenario they usually don't enjoy that. They'd rather just have a genuine conversation and want to know about you. And they probably will ask you a couple questions and then move on. Cause you know, they have something to be able to meet. But like, I think I always tell people, it's like, don't go the picture and screaming route, go the, ask them a question that's to make them want to pause and think. Cause then you have a much higher chance of, of, uh, actually getting through, you know? Um, yeah. It, and also those people there, there's some, some, overlap between Debbie and Brian and that they're both so deep and varied so, and interesting and yeah. the way their minds work. I mean, if you can take a moment to engage someone who is that incredible, your life will be forever touched. You forever. will grow so much if you just have the courage to just be there with them and talk to them. You just never know where the conversation will go. Yeah. And uh, it is worth every second of being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. The, the second interview I had with Brian, I met him at his office and then we left and walked around that like party surplus store um, in Tribeca <laughs> that has like heads and costumes and things um, <laughs> because he was looking for something he needed for um, some, some design presentation. And then he ended up taking me to this. The circus was at uh, Madison Square Garden. So we went to the circus. Wow. Um, yeah. So like that's that's kind of like what is in my mind Brian Collins. Um, like it's it's eclectic. You're not really expecting what's next. Um, but going back to Debbie Millman. Um, yes. Because her story is an incredible one, and we don't. I I don't think anyone does it justice except her. Um, I so I will link below um, Tim Ferriss's podcast with her. Because I think that yeah. is her most complete telling of that story. Yes. Um, and she and, and Tim, I think, is one of the special people that can really pull things out of people. Um, and mm-hmm. Debbie's one of those people that's willing to share, but Tim still like I I think I think Tim still achieved more than Debbie thought that he would be able to, which I think is why it became mm-hmm. such a good podcast. Um, but that's mm-hmm. like three it's like three and a half hours of of bliss. Um yeah. and uh I think Brian should should go on there as well. Um but yes. you know, Brian is Brian is someone to me that you know people usually give me that response of like <gasps> when I say like oh well, you work for Brian and I'm just like to me it's Brian like I I I love I still respect everything he's done I still respect him a lot as a human being I still see him once in a while but you know just to have that very you know everyone at that company at Collins has a very intimate work relationship with each other um, and they it's kind of like a big family. Um, and the one thing I appreciate about Brian is that he would sometimes bring me to events that I had no business being at, um, <laughs> respective to to like what was going on. And other people at his firm too, like even some of them had no business being there. But he would always present us as this is their name, uh, and I work with them. No one works for him; they all work with him, um, which is something that I learned at a young age when I was I don't know twenty two, that uh, twenty three that um. I say the same thing. People are like, oh no, they're these this is my team. We all work together. Um I I don't even like saying my team. Like these are the people I work with. Uh, and I think that's that 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 distinction in 
verbiage is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and Tim Ferriss says it too. Um, you know, he won't say like, this is my podcast. This is like, oh, this is the show. Thank you for coming and having a conversation with me, you know? Um, and I think, I think language is, I, I think language is everything. And I think most people are busy and trying to fill pages of the text when we should all just be saying less and saying more meaningful things. Oh, I love that. I yeah. love that. It's just, there's too much out there. And I think that's why this podcast and, and this, and this short and this long form media has become so popular because it allows people to be walking in the woods or walking their dog or maybe sitting down and doing work and still be able to be engaged and, and get this in. Because I think it's one thing that you will never get from print media. Even some of the best writers out there, you don't get context. You don't get vocal tonality. You don't get the pause of someone when they're about to talk about something that's hard, you know? Um, And that is just so human. I think that's why people love this medium, right? Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, So yeah, Debbie Millman, incredible. Meet your heroes. Uh, If if, if there's someone out there listening to this right now and there's someone that you've been dying to talk to, just reach out to them. And if they don't respond, then just keep reaching out to them. Uh, But always be polite. Always be respectful. Um, And and like LinkedIn is an amazing opportunity to talk to people that you have no business talking to, (laughs) as I've learned. It's true. It's very true. I mean, I reached out to you on LinkedIn. That's how this this how this podcast came to be. Um, It's true. And I only discovered you because I think Brian shared one of your posts a while back um, and uh, or commented on it. It's one of the two. But I I've learned to pay attention. And also that's too pay attention to who your heroes are talking about uh, or, or mentioning or uh, processing. Cause I think those people are also important and building this network and this web um, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. So I, before I get you out of here on a couple uh, rapid fire questions, um, I want to ask you, um, mm-hmm. what are your, what are your feelings on love? Man, you ask tough questions. <sighs> Specific kind of love or just love in general? I'll leave it open-ended. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Answer is choice. Sorry. Oh, okay. I really distinguish different types of love as uh, different kinds of attachment. Um, humanistic humanitarian type love I think is for me it's hugely important because it reminds us about community connection we're all here together we're all connected together in fact there was a study recently on trees where it showed how the root systems are developed and how they're all interconnected. And when one tree dies, they send all the resources out of that tree into the roots and it goes out to the little saplings. And I think humanity has similar connections just through our DNA and being on this planet and being connected together. So I really think of love as a type of very deep, connection to each other like that i and then 
romantic love is a little bit different in that that's more of a conversation between two people and evolution um, of who you are and what your patterns are and who you're becoming. And it either can be a really painful conversation or a really beautiful and sometimes it switches back and forth. Whereas the human, you know, humanistic sort of humanitarian love is just more of a bigger container. So that that's kind mm. of my overview thinking. I love that. Um, can I ask you a personal question? Are you are you married uh, or have kids or what's what's your story? I am married, no kids. Is that a is our kids something you just didn't? ever want I, I know i'm this is can be a difficult <laughs> oh, question yeah. or anything but i'm just yeah. i'm curious um so i was really career driven early on um and so it, it didn't really cross my mind um when i did end up pregnant accidentally i um lost the pregnancy and so Same i really that. Yeah, it was quite an experience. And um, my husband and I had a long conversation about it. And I just made the choice that I'm going to let it go. So mm. uh, it was it was a hard choice. And um, <laughs> it's actually really difficult for me to, with everything that's going on politically, when people don't understand that things happen to people, uh, to women, that, that you I mean, you don't have control over it. So, um, yeah. So that's kind of where that is. I love children. I think they're beautiful. And I'm thrilled to have deep connections with my niece and nephew. So that's going to fill that space. Yeah. I'm glad. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, was, I wasn't, I hope uh, I wasn't uh, crossing. No, no, no. Uh, no, no. I'm just always curious because um, based on your talk about love and, 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 giving back to the next generation i was just curious if you know you had your own or if if not i had a good deep feeling that there was something that was in there that you wanted to you know give those resources to the saplings so to speak as you just mentioned um, yeah well i just think there's a lot of different ways to do it and um so you know it's really hard for women in in demanding careers anyway um yeah. to balance all of that so but I also think there's sort of a process of surrender in life where you can or I can try to live my life in a way that is authentic and honest and just allow life to live through me, basically. And if mm -hmm. things, difficult things happen or things don't work out, that that's just part of the process. You know, you, there's there's this illusion of control that we, we really just don't have. So my goal now for giving back and legacy and thinking about all that stuff is more community focused um, and also individual focus. Like if someone comes to me and wants to engage with me, I really will spend time with people. Um, I love that. If I can help you in some way, if I can, uh, I don't know, just have a nice exchange, I'm open. So hmm. I think there's lots of ways to give back, lots and lots of ways. 
I love that. And and so illusion of control, I think, is something that's really important. It's something that I personally struggled with a lot and still struggle to at some points. You know, it's like I don't think I'm ever going to fully move on from my desire for control. I think that's can be really just... <laughs> But no, it's 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 like where, where the root of cause of anxiety is, right? Like, what is anxiety? It's a it's a it's a it's a fear of losing control. Um, yeah. At the at the end of the day, right? Um, yeah. And, I, and I'm someone who's dealt with a lot of anxiety, and, and meditation is was that thing for me that allowed me to move beyond that crippling, at least the crippling level of anxiety. I think I think a certain amount of anxiety is natural. Um, you know, we're mm-hmm. all human at the end of the day. Uh, mm-hmm. And whenever someone's like, "Oh, I, I don't have any anxiety," I'm like, "Yeah, bull fucking shit." No like, way. No, <laughs> no way. way. No way. You're just deep in denial. Um, yes. Denial. Yeah. There's there's a great piece in denial that that I don't want to get into. Um, that I'll link below to anyone else to read it. Um, uh, by this guy. There's this there's this individual named Tebow, and he has his Twitter account that's at kpex. That's at k. P-A-X-S. And I don't actually don't know. It's I don't think I don't know if it's a, a few people that run it or one person that is just a, that's a, that's their alias. But they had this blog or this newsletter that you had to pay. It was a paid one. It's like a hundred bucks a year. Um, that he only that I, th- I assume it's a he. I don't think it's a he. The, the 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 persona they give out online is is a he. But I don't know mm-hmm. who it actually is. Um, but is one of the best things I've ever read in my entire life. Um, and like every single week was just a uh, book drop after book drop after book drop and like two pages of text. And I loved it because I'm just like, and I, I think it's still, I think he made it all free. It's still all available. Um, I think, I think it's called Connectcom, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-C-O-M. But yeah, I mean, he, he wrote about everything from um, denial to uh, my, one of my favorite pieces was he wrote about how um like social media is a modern panopticon which to people that don't know is like the old school prisons in france where like every inmate had a window and like this dome so they could see what everyone else is doing so like just by that pure notion that everyone could see what everyone else is doing everyone behaved better um yeah um yeah he has this tweet where he originally wrote about it and then this became became a uh became a, a a newsletter which was if you have debt know the number down to the cent if you're underperforming know exactly what your peers are doing you're not stuck because you're lazy you're stuck because you're still in denial um and that's just yeah he's he I, I say he but it's just it, i don't know um oh it looks like there is a new newsletter i was just p- playing up his twitter page and if that's the case i am paying for it um, <laughs> Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, let me, let me, let me see if it's there. And, and like I said, I, I do show notes for every, um, every, every podcast episode. So if you are uh, looking for anything that we've said and don't feel like, um, typing it in, then, um, it's, it's down below in the little show more button on your Spotify or Apple or whatever app you're listening to this with. But I, I, I think, I hope he's republishing I just keep saying he. I hope they are republishing. Um, because I, I don't know. I, I I'm like the the persona they give it on Twitter is that of a, a man, and they've said they're a man, but the, the it's such an enigma that I just don't know if it is, you know? Mm. Um yeah, I, I think what I did is I yeah. 
if yeah i i took notes I, i'm a, I'm that person that takes notes every time i read something i think it's because i'm just a nerd but um uh-huh. he wrote something um he like i'll i'll just read something quickly just so people get, get kind of get a little tease was he had this uh piece called the revolution of well-being and he wrote mm-hmm. we begin to measure every experience in life in terms of its personal gratification we begin to find ourselves chronal chronically suspicious of our own satisfaction the question will this make me happy imperceptibly morphs into can something else make me happier um and it's just like that it's like that for a page and a half and so it would take me so long to read these newsletters because i'd want to think about everything as i read it um and so yeah i mean i'm definitely subscribing because that's whoever this person is i'll link both below but i would not like there are some people as i'm sure you know like artists or writers that they could come out with anything i'm gonna pay for it like i'll yeah I, i don't i don't care um, actually, I want to, I want to ask you about this cause I, I haven't, this is the first podcast I've recorded since, uh, what's happening with Twitter. Um, uh-huh. and I think it's such a fascinating thing. And something you also said about people who maybe lack the mental capacity yes. or mental process. Like I have so much empathy for Elon Musk. Um, not only yeah. as someone with like, I have a much, much lower um, impactful version of Asperger's than he does, but I still have those kind of same connections. Um, so uh-huh. I understand where he comes from. And I think that he gets a lot of flack for things that I don't think he fully understands. And there'd be people that are like, oh, of course he knows. He's taking advantage of people. And I'm like, I don't, there's something else there. And I, I can't really connect it, but he's definitely either an alien or someone that just <laughs> honestly has very low EQ. And I think a lot of his decisions yeah. and the things he says are based on that. Um, and, and I'm not defending him. I am a, I am a huge supporter of what he's done with Tesla and what he's done with SpaceX and what he's done with Neuralink. Um, and I think Mm -hmm. overall things kind of work in his direction, but something about paying, I was mentioned paying for art and paying for things that are worth it. Um, if there's someone out there that you want to support, um, or someone that you believe in, then, then, then support it, like pay for it. And yeah. my big thing about using things is if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. So when Elon wants to turn Twitter into a space where you have an ability to basically opt into higher functionality as well as become verified um, for eight bucks a month, I think that's that's worth it if that's something that you, if you find value in Twitter. If you don't, then feel free to operate the free level, but just know that they are, you are part of a system that is making them money. And that same thing with TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, and it's no different. Um, But I think the sad thing that I saw, and I really want your take on this, is that the amount of people that I saw like repulsed at the idea of paying for verification really, and, and, and I think, I think a lot of the people that are verified are more repulsed the idea that anyone can become verified. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because people genuinely associated being verified with being important. Um, and I think that is a very toxic correlation that Elon is trying to kill. Um, but more importantly, I saw a journalist say, uh, well, how will people know which people are telling the truth now? And I became really scared because their basic idea was that if someone's verified, then that means that Twitter believes they're putting out the right and proper credit information. And you and I both know that's not true. Um, so. I don't know. I think we're entering into a, a world where like I was realizing that some people definitely looked up to verified users as like being arbiters of truth when in reality they were just somewhat 
important. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you, like, I just want to, what is your general take on everything that's happening? Well, with Twitter, it's really interesting because the, they've got to have some way where you know you're hearing from the person that you think yes. you're hearing from and not a bot, not somebody who's hacked in and is imitating them. So how do you define that? How do you know you're hearing the truth from the actual person? And, you know, of course, people have people who write for them and you never really know, but there is an illusion, I think, with the verification that if Brian Collins posts something and his site is verified, he's saying, this is actually really me. I personally had to verify this account. Yeah. I don't know how you create a more sort of democratized situation that, that, uh, keeps the ego out of it and the idea of being more important versus knowing what you're getting mm. and and maybe paying for it would help kind of separate those two uh arenas more i'm not sure yeah i don't it's really it's hard to because i saw an argument with elon and stephen king and i'm like man you can't charge stephen king <laughs> He brings you so much business. Yeah. So, you know, then there's that. There's like, do you charge the people who are basically funding your platform by their incredible number of followers? Do you give them a discount? Like, I think there's a lot of thought mm. that is going to need to occur for, for Elon sure. and his team about how they structure this going forward. Because if his intention is to create a more level, you know, playing field for people to fund his uh, business venture, which is fair, fine. Yep. Um, and then allow the free part for more of the public square kind of vibe, which I think is what Twitter was supposed to be originally anyway. Originally, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you di differentiate the two without excluding one group? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's really sticky and it's really complicated. Yeah. So I actually think it's it's fascinating um, because because you have to figure out where to draw that line. And I've heard that argument that like you charging you want to charge eight bucks to people that are producing free content on your platform. Um, yeah. But but I actually believe that like the Stephen King example actually works the other way. Um, he is the one of the wealthiest authors ever. Um, eight dollars a month is not as significant to, to someone like that. Um, right. So I I see I I could see how the inconvenience of him having to type in his credit card would be annoying for him, you know. Mm -hmm. But like, I I I think at the end of the day, the biggest like narrative violation I've seen and people arguing about this online is that most of the people who are against it are people that are like you don't know why they're verified in the first place. Maybe they wrote like four articles in their life and they just like are, you know, getting off on the fact that they're verified or yeah. they're people that I think are just trying to hate on Elon um, or yeah. just genuinely don't, don't like the idea of paying more money. But the big thing that I think people need to understand is that if I make an account saying I'm AOC, I can't get verified as AOC. Um, and I think people are confused by this. And some people, I know, I know, I know you're not cause you, you said something the opposite, but the point I'm trying to make to people listening that may still be confused about this 
is that like if you're if I say I'm Stephen King and copy his picture and make an email and do a very good job, like they are building verification methods. What I understand that utilizes blockchain and federal ID to basically verify who a person is. Um, mm -hmm. So like unless someone has a copy of your passport and a copy of some other things, um, it's probably not going to happen. And I'm sure there's a case or two where it might happen, but you know, mm -hmm. with any good system, I'm sure there's a way for rebuttal, right? Um, and right. I think it's important to note, like, I would love, I would love everyone to be verified. Like, honestly, if everyone in the platform, it was like, uh, this is Rob Auchincloss and this is Heather Crank and we're having a discussion and you know, it's them, you know, it's not bots, you know, yeah. it's not people pretending to be them. Um, right. and if someone's a politician, then they can have, as, as they've said, a little tag, like AOC, uh, you know, Senator for New York or Congress. Yeah. Congressman? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then Stephen King, like author. Um, and then same thing with me. It's just like for you and I, like I'd be fine with whatever they want to put on there. Like if yeah, it's said, oh, these people are designers or they're, they're human beings. I don't care. But like, if I yeah. was, if I was Joe Biden and it said like former president, that's fine. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know, but also, you know, like Joe Biden isn't writing Joe Biden's tweets anyways, his team is doing it. So like what, what, yeah. what is verification anyways? Um, yeah. And that's interesting as well. It's like, I also think it'd be like Joe Biden's Twitter account's a good example. I had this argument yesterday. I think it should be verified so you know which account is giving out information of the president of the United States, regardless if you agree with him or not. Um, yes. But I think that it should be like a White House press Twitter account that can be run by his team, but the Joe Biden account can only be used by him. Like, it's his yeah. words, it's him using it. He can have help writing it, but he needs to be the person that's pressing send, you know, mm -hmm. um, or else it can't be verified to be him, right? Because if, right. if a team is yeah. writing your stuff, it's not, that's not, that's not you. That's not you. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's what they're trying to get to. And so if basically they said it's kind of like Netflix, you pay a couple bucks a month for, you know, uh, a ad version and you pay a little bit more for a non ad version. And if they make features on Twitter, including verification and authentication that allow you to get these access i mean it makes sense to me at least from like mm -hmm. a logical perspective i think the problem that a lot of people have is that people are verified and they don't want to lose that and i think what elon said is perfect he's like there's a, a lords and peasants fiefdom system that's existed with verification that he wants to destroy and i i'm i support that you know and so i think it's ironic when you have someone like aoc who you know champions the idea of unions and creating an equal playing field getting upset at this idea of everyone being verified you know, the mm -hmm. point about verification is like you could still have the QAnon person that screams about that, you know, abortions, murdering babies and some horrific shit towards LGBTQ communities. Um, but just because they're verified doesn't mean that they're telling the truth or deserve a platform. It just means that they're the person saying it, it means that person is accountable. And the best thing about being verified is that you can't have someone with a shit post account in QAnon that's saying like their name is the world destroyer. You have to be like, Oh no, you have to use your actual name, which I think is going to really change a lot of online yeah. shit, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. and that's my big thing, right? I think verification for everyone is great. Cause then, cause then you can't have like shit poster, Steve, that's his little handle. And he just shits on Joe Biden or shits on Trump or shits. There's so much like shit post accounts out there that are just adding yeah. to the fire in the most unnecessary yeah. way. And the best thing about it is people don't get verified. Like there'll be a little, like people will know over time that like it's most likely a bot or someone that's trying to get likes. And those accounts are going to very, very often be unfavored towards verified accounts. And people are going to realize like, yeah. 
if you want to be part of the conversation, if you want to be part of the town square, you have to pay for it. Just like you have to pay for your Wi-Fi or your cable bill or your phone plan. I, I think it makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. my, that's my rant. Sorry for kind of taking over this conversation no, with that, but no, 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 no. I think it, it's important. It's a hot topic. Yeah, it is. But yeah, you know, like I said, is. like if imagine, you know, a basic, it's the, the same version is imagine you had free texting and then all of a sudden someone started charging you for it. You'd be like, this is crazy. Like, how can I be part of the conversation? It's like, okay. Well, we, we just happen to pay for it. Um, you know, like if WhatsApp one day went to a paid membership option, then Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. And I think people would still pay for it because they may be getting more features and, and, and like, and the authentication. And then people Mm -hmm. are like, well, iMessage is free. No, it's not. You have to buy an Apple device. Like you can't just download it. It's, it's still Walt. Right. And I think, I hope Mm -hmm. this, this situation makes people realize that like, if something is free, you need to be very wary of what it is. Yeah. Um, Cause I, and, and, and to the point where people are like, everything's any more expensive. I have to pay for everything. Yes. That's how the world works. You know, if you want to have access to Peacock and Netflix and Hulu, then you have to pay for it. If you don't want mm-hmm. access to that content, then don't pay for it. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. if you want a nice piece of fresh salmon over like some store-bought frozen piece from Walmart, you pay the difference. Like that's just kind of how the world works right um and i think it's good that way because some people do like the frozen stuff at walmart you and i i know we're willing to pay the farmer or the fisherman down at the local town square however much money per pound the you know copper river salmon is right yes yes perfect um two yeah i'll have two pounds i'll have two i'll have 20 pounds actually um (laughs) by the way uh speaking of salmon have you ever had king or a salmon what is that so i don't know where it's hold on let me see if i can do a quick google while i talk about it so i've had it a few times in my life you can find it pretty often in seattle um and i've had it in new york as well um but it's basically like the best way to describe it it's like a the wagyu version of salmon because the fat veins are like three or four times larger than they are in a typical salmon so it's much fattier almost like a fatty tuna compared to normal tuna Um, oh yeah okay and so let's see, aura kings are same species as wild king salmons found in Alaska and the Shuck, but they le- represent less than 0.5% of the population. They're the fattiest, boasting the highest levels of omega-3. Um, and so wow. So like, if you Google a picture of it, and I'll put a picture below for everyone, you can see like the fat veins become visible, like Wagyu. Like you can see these white, thick veins of fat, where normally there's like these thin lines in the middle. Um, but flavor-wise, it is... Like, I'm sure everyone here has had tuna if they eat fish uh, and live in a commercialized country uh, and some kind of sushi if they want to. Um, there, was, there was a lot of modifiers to that. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but like, if you have fatty tuna and, like, a really good special piece of otoro, you know, um, it's special and you know it. It just tastes amazing. So this is the same kind of thing. I recommend you try cooking with it. But the best thing about it is if you grill it or saute it or bake it properly you can actually eat the skin because of the layer of fat between the skin and the um flesh oh, muscle wow. i should say and the skin mm-hmm. is delicious it's like this crispy like it almost tastes like a nice crisp light tasting piece of seaweed and it's just like honestly i had um there's this hotel there's this restaurant called electric lemon it's actually mm-hmm. in the equinox hotel in hudson yards in new york city um, and they do the salad 
and you can add a piece of king or salmon on top and it and it's divine um it just like it's buttery melt in your mouth salmon that has like the best flavor flavor profile with edible skin um so i, I gotta tell anyone on here if you have a chance to eat it eat it um because it will change salmon i have a people who wow. hate salmon uh but love king or salmon um hmm. it's yeah so sorry for that little foray no um, no 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 thank you yeah so i recommend i'm sure you can find some locally where you are um brought down from alaska but i'm sure it's at a uh i'm sure there's a higher end fish market in town they probably have it um, oh yeah sure. but like anything else it's expensive but you pay for what you get but i think with you with your cooking ability and your garden i think it come up with some really incredible <laughs> dish with it and i'd love to see yeah. what you come up with um so um this conversation has been incredible i'm going to get you out of here on a few questions um you okay. can answer these in as few or as many words as you like kind of rapid fire session um if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family what problem would you try and solve mm. i think hunger is there anything yeah any any idea off the top of your head that you would kind of put the money towards at first I like the model. There's a company called uh, Imperfect Foods where they yes. take yeah. damaged produce. Um, I think making a model like that, that uh, where they donate food to people who need it. Uh, I used to have several gardens when I lived in Denver, and one of them, uh, the garden was specifically for the homeless shelter, where you know people have great difficulty getting fresh produce. And I think it's a really simple solution. It just, somebody needs to start it. Yes. And there are more and more nonprofits I've seen where people are creating community gardens and employing people that would normally struggle getting a job. Maybe they're ex-convicts or people with special needs or learning disabilities. And not only are you creating produce directly for that community, but you're also giving people jobs. And so you're basically creating this yeah. self-sufficient system, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, I love I'll that. have to find what nonprofit it is. Um, one of them does it in in like Queens, and they mainly uh, hire ex ex like people that are traditionally unemployable. That like people don't pass a background check because they had a past felony. But most of the past felonies are because they had like a gram of marijuana in the eighties. Oh, um, yeah. Which is a whole yeah. other topic we could probably spend a long time talking about. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, is there a story that your family or parents like to tell about you? Oh my God. Wow. These are good questions. Um, yeah, I think they like to tell the story about when I was little, I would, no one ever, ever, ever wanted me to make their sandwiches because <laughs> I really had really terrible knife skills oh. and, uh, it was kind of a, it was just a family joke. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guessing uh, those have improved since then, since you seem to cook a lot of vegetables. Much. <laughs> yes, much improved. Much, much improved. Yeah. Um, actually, side question that is thought of. Um, being someone that does a lot of cooking with vegetables, you obviously use knives a lot. Are there any, um, I always find good answers with this question. Are there? Is there a brand of knife or a knife that you really, really like that you've gotten a lot of um, like good use from? You know, the... <laughs> The one that um, I'm using the most was my grandma's, and I don't That's even awesome. know what brand that is. It, I've had it forever. Yeah, they don't make knives like they used to, or if they do, they're just incredibly expensive. 
Yeah, I, I, I get it sharpened regularly and I, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I, I think the best thing I tell people is just buy something real, buy something that is made from steel that you can sharpen for a very long time. Um, yes. And yeah. my, my general rule of thumb is if its level of sharpness scares you when using it, that's probably yes. good. Uh, no, has, razor sharp, dull yeah. lines are oh, yeah. Oh. yeah, for sure. You know, the, uh, what's it called? The, um, where they test all the different kitchen stuff. Mm. Oh, I understand that. Network, I can't remember. It's one of the shows. There's a great show where it's really geeky if you're into kitchen stuff, but they test everything. They test strainers, they test knives, they test all awesome. kinds of stuff. It's one of my favorite places to learn about new stuff. So, And also, um, I had a friend who used to work for a company that made these, but um, ceramic knives. If people are using, they're great for vegetables. Uh, they're not okay, great for so other things, have, but I haven't tried those. I thought it was more of a gimmick, but you actually like it, huh? Yeah. So their only downside is like, if you drop it in the sink, they're going to chip. Um, you can't dishwash them, but they stay sharp for a very, very, very long time. And so my parents, uh, my dad and my stepmom, I should say, and a few, and my friend's parents and him who used to work for the company that makes them, um, uh, they're fantastic. And they also scared the living daylights out of me because they're just so sharp. Um, but ceramic is such a hard, hard substance that that's why it stays so sharp and you can sharpen it super easily. Like an at-home sharpener okay. is the same as professionally sharpening a steel knife. Um, really? And the price point is great. Like now you can go to Target and buy a, buy a cheaper one for like, I think it's like $10. And it's going to be the sharpest, way sharper than any of the, the steel and aluminum shit they're selling for like 20 bucks of their own home brand. Um, so I think it's actually a good option uh, for people that maybe want to have good cutlery, but can't afford good cutlery. Um, I think it's a great option for that. Um, but for me, I'm always like, a I love Japanese steel. It's very expensive, respectively. That's the thing oh. is my, my, my girl, I had a girlfriend, um, so ex-girlfriend, I should say, um, in 2018. And I bought the shun, like the Japanese knives where they have oh, like yeah. see the veins in them. Um, yes. I spent like $600 on, uh, like an eight inch chef's knife, a six inch chef's knife, a four inch paring knife and a pair of scissors. And wow. she thought I was insane, but to this day, I still use them every single day. I'm home. Um, they work perfectly. I think I've sharpened them once mm -hmm. and like, my yeah. friend wanted to see if he could do it. Um, and that same friend then cut off part of his thumb with the knife. That's how oh. sharp it is. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> sorry for that. I should give a warning on that. But uh, it was fine. It ended up being uh, like his thumb's fine, thankfully. Uh, but long story short, uh, it's just uh, like, yeah, it's the worst. Learn how to, okay, good cutting skills are one of the most underrated like things. I think one of the best advice I ever heard, one of my good friends, um, what is that noise? I don't hear it. You're dropping in and out just a little bit. Oh, sorry. I think that's what it was. Um, it was, I heard this beeping noise like, Sorry about that. Uh, I'll stop that that story. Um, but long story short, um, cutting skills are one of the biggest things you can do to improve your food. Um, oh, huge, huge. Texture is everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially with vegetables. Like if, if you're not getting that clear cut, if that cell wall isn't being cut properly and using a dull knife, like sometimes that breakdown of the cell wall can cause different flavor profiles in food. They learned recently, actually. Yeah. And, um, and also you're more like, hurt yourself too yes yeah amazing which is yeah the opposite of what you think um so 
Um, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, where would it be and what would it say? Where would it be? So tell me what you mean by where would it be? So let's just say um, I'm going to send a push notification to everyone's phone that says, uh, you know, take 15 minutes, put your phone down, go for a walk outside. Um, and I would send it to someone probably, probably it could be anywhere. It could be like San Francisco or like my neighborhood I live in oh, or okay. all of the U S that's what I mean by that. Um, I think I would say I would send it to, I think I would send it to California and I would say, stop, close your eyes and breathe. I love that. Maybe use less water. <laughs> hey, no judgment. That's fair. No judgment. I, I do. I'm a big bath guy, so I can't really talk. Um, big bath guy. Um, otherwise, is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention for the audience or anything, any parting advice or wisdom or things to go check out or see? Oh, man. Well, I mean... There's so much to check out and see. I don't even know where to start. I, I can just tell you that when I see things that I really like, I will put them on my Instagram stories. Um, and I actually will post there every morning and every night as I'm, you know, looking for inspiration. I so I, I actively try to champion people, but also just you're getting a like a visual diary of what I'm looking at and thinking about. Um Oh, I have a mid-journey class coming up on the 11th of 11-11-22. Mm. Um, going to dive into it. And what else? I think oh God, there's just so much out there. I don't even know where to start with that. Um, I don't know. Just be curious. Be open. And uh, take time for yourself. And make sure you take lots of downtime in nature super important especially right now when it's really stressful ditto that <laughs> ditto that um we'll keep talking offline um but i'll sign off thank you everyone for listening uh to the podcast and i hope you guys all have a good rest of your day i hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and heather crank you can find heather online at heather crank h-e-a-t-h-e-r-c-r-a-n-k and as always, you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your days. Goodbye.